0: That's just wow. hear
1: met here for the purpose of worship, and certainly worship consists of a lot of things, not the least of which is prayer. We do have a prayer list over here to my left. Uh, feel free to get one and use it as appropriate. And it's good to have the judge back with us, so we uh, will be taking him off the prayer list, though he's still hurting uh, as a result of his fall. But uh, <clears throat> It's important that we pray for our country, as you certainly can tell from all the news reports. We have a lot of controversial things going on, but we know there's only one answer, and that is to, for believers to get right with God by means of taking in the Word of God. So that's our job, to become part of the pivot and not part of the spin-off. So uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer, we're going to have silent prayer again, and uh, a little later we are going to have a song, if kind of, and we're going to have the uh, singing, you guys are going to get to sing and Ken's going to get to lead us, so that'll be uh, a milestone, but let's first go to the Lord in silent prayer, and then we will continue our worship service, let us pray. Ahem. <clears throat> In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Alright, by way of announcements, we are going to have Bible study and prayer meeting on Wednesday, 6.30 for our prayer meeting, 7 o'clock for our Bible study in the book of John. So feel free to join us if you so choose. Alright, now for another aspect of worship. Giving, it is part of worship. And we know that uh, there's a great deal to be said in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9 about New Testament giving. Those chapters are dedicated uh, virtually totally to giving and what the Bible teaches we are to do as New Testament saints. So uh, feel free to either go to the doctrine of giving on our website, westbankbiblechurch.com. Look under Pastor Merritt's study books and go to giving and you will find a categorical study there. But uh, I want to read 2 Corinthians 8.12. It says, For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one doesn't have. And I think uh, that gives us indication... That uh, whether you have anything to give or not is not the issue. The issue is you have a desire to give, and if you have that, want to, then uh, you are giving New Testament style. Then in Second Corinthians nine seven it says, "Every man according as he purpose in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, because God loves a cheerful giver." And it's my view that that tells us if you have something to give and you can give without uh, attachment. In other words, uh, you can give. In other words, uh, hilariously. In other words, you can give joyfully. You can give, and it's not uh, work on your part to give, but rather you want to give. Well, if you can do that, then give. If not, don't give. In other words, keep it. So that's interesting that we have those. Two verses that summarize New Testament giving. Again, you need to have the willingness. And if you do, you gave, whether you have anything to give or not. But if you do have something to give, don't give unless you can do it cheerfully, because God loveth a cheerful giver. Alright, with that said, now we're going to have a song. Kenneth, if you would come please and lead us. You can stand if you choose, or if you choose to seek. Uh, stay seated. That's fine too. But this will be our first time back for a while, so uh, let's all turn to what page, Kenneth?
0: Number 40. Let's, let's try and see if we can make it through all four verses. Of
1: Be seated, please. Thank you, Kenneth. Good to have congregational singing again. All right. Last week we completed the study of second and third these second and third missionary journeys, and when the clock told eleven thirty, we were about to begin several concluding remarks regarding Paul's visit to Corinth. Uh, but first, let's use First John one nine as may or may not be necessary. Then we'll have a short review, and, and uh, then we'll see what we can do with several summary points. Let us pray. <coughs> Father, we are grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and study Your Word, Now guide and direct us as we do want to study to show ourselves approved unto You, workmen who need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, let's go to our summary points now. There were great idolatrous temples in Corinth with the cafe, temple, and fornication area. Particularly popular seemed to be the temple of Apollos. And of course, when Paul arrived there, as you'll remember, he uh, was uh, actually ready to leave because he... Found it to be so objectionable, then God gave him a vision and said, No, you better get with it, boy, because I have many people here. And uh, so he decided he better stay, given those direct orders. All right, uh, there was also a meat market outside the temple where meat was sold. Many Christian converts came from these idolatrous religious backgrounds, and many of them had strong feelings about the practices. associated with idol worship and their rule their role in the abomination so they became Christians and joined together to worship together they were offended uh, about a lot of things certainly to include their own conduct previous prior conduct of course there where they had participated uh, and so they were very sensitive about what went on in the temples uh, and they were there were believers there on the one hand who Saw nothing wrong with buying the meat, and, uh, since in their mind there was no such thing as an idol. And all this gave us opportunity to study the doctrine of liberty versus license. Uh, so a schism did develop in this church as we studied uh, in our study of that particular doctrine. Paul was asked to adjudicate the matter. <clears throat> in other words, who is right? The group that says there's no such thing as an idol, so it's okay to eat the meat or those who were offended by those who did eat the meat. Uh, so he was asked what to do and what position to take. And it was Paul's view, you know, well, it's there's no such thing as an idol as those on the left, let's say. Uh, and they believed because there was no such thing as an idol. There's nothing wrong with eating the meat. And there were those on the right, however, who were offended because of their prior conduct and. And actually not understanding the fact that there's no such thing as an idol so it hadn't been really offered to an idol so Paul issues the uh, declar- the um, a very unusual uh, declaration if you will with reference to who was right he says you know though those who say there's no such thing as an idol they are correct there's to know that's right but you got to watch out for your weaker brother and that's where he explains uh Uh, In several verses, like 1 Corinthians 8.13 and chapter 10, verses 23 through 33 of 1 Corinthians, uh, the doctrine of liberty versus license and how a Christian has to be flexible. So he said, when you go to the meat market, uh, don't ask whether the meat has been sacrificed to idols or not. And he says in, uh, again, 23, 24, and 25, everything is permissible. But not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible. Not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good. In other words, quit being selfish. Don't seek your own good. Seek the good of the ignorant brother. And of course, that sets some back and still does today. Like, why should I worry about somebody else who's ignorant? To, uh, but if I'm going to offend them by what I do or what I say, Uh covers a lot, of the, a lot of area, of course, not only meat, but as it will later on, it covers also drinking. Uh, so Paul says if some believers invite you to a meal uh, and you want to go eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience, but if they seem to be uh, testing you and say, you know, this meat's been sacrificed to idols, and they watch you, then you don't eat. So he says, you know, you have to be skillful in the application of Christian doctrines. So you must be flexible, says Paul, and he says, make the issue Christ. If you make the meat or the alcohol the issue, then you're not making the issue of Christ. Uh, and therefore, you know, you either eat or don't eat. And he actually says, I sometimes I eat it, sometimes I don't. It depends on how I discern the situation. In other words, if I think they're testing me, then, of course, I'll take the position that I'm not going to eat. But if indeed they are just so... Tickled that they're able to furnish this big T-bone steak and here's a nice glass of wine and, and there's no issue. I'll eat the meat and I'll drink the wine. So, he's in essence saying Christianity is an art. It's not necessarily, you know, cut and dried, black or white. So flexibility is the order of the day according to Paul with reference to 1 t- Corinthians 10, 31, 32, and 33. So the same lesson is taught by Paul to the church at Rome, by the way. He doesn't just leave it in his teachings in 1 Corinthians, but he also uh, has things to say in the book to the Romans. Let me read. Here, however, in those, in the, in the epistle to the church at Rome, uh, the drinking of wine is added to the teaching example of meat. And uh, he says, None of us can live our lives unto ourselves. You must not judge others, but rather judge yourself, says Paul, so that you do not offend a weaker brother in Christ. So notice Romans 14.13, Let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. So Paul tells those in the church at Rome that there are weaker brothers out there As he said in 14 and 15 of chapter 14, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. So under the same principle of the not casting your pearls before swine. we must not let that which is a non-essential, but it may be a correct principle. Uh, be ridiculed by the ignorant Christian. Notice Romans 14:16 and 17, "Let not then your good be evil spoken of." Romans 14:17 says, "For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit." So by correctly applying this doctrine, we can be approved of both God and man. But it does require, as we have seen, flexibility. Let me read 14, 18, 19, and 20 in the book of Romans. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of them. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. For meat destroyeth not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. And of course, uh, we don't have any trouble with meat sacrificed to idols because that's not a temptation to us. But verse 21 adds, Drinking of wine, it says in Romans 14, It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. So you have to use your good judgment and your application of the doctrine you have in your soul with reference to whether you eat or you drink. So it is certainly true, we do live our lives as unto the Lord. It is also true, however, that living the Christian life also include applying impersonal love toward all people, but especially fellow believers. Let me read. From the book of Romans, chapter 15, verses 1, 2, and 3. We then, that are strong, ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, and not please ourselves. That we're, Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me." So the test of flexibility is very difficult because many weak believers and unbelievers may try to impose their standards on you and you may be tempted to react. Our job is to relax and let doctrine have a chance to change us all and this demands flexibility uh, concerning the non-essentials. I'm going to turn on the chart on the board which shows the third missionary journey. And it uh, gives you an idea of what's coming up. Uh, we could actually probably have a subheading here. And we do have in one of the versions of the doctrine of Paul, Paul's reversionism. Because he is on the way to reversionism. Uh, it's a sad tale and God's going to have to discipline him. Because he wants to get back under the law. Uh, which means he's retreating from his repeated teaching that you're saved by grace and uh, you don't want to get back under the Mosaic Law. So take a look at that third journey, which you can see. He's going to make his way back all the way to Tyre and then go on down to Jerusalem. And it is there that he will uh, take a stand and go into the temple. And he and James will get together and come up with a, a erroneous concept and application of Scripture. And so God will have him in prison for two years in Caesarea and roughly three years in total uh, in in what we call Syria. In other words, the Holy Land. And then he'll have three years in Rome. And it is during that time that he will write the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, three great books. And it's like God said, I'm going to have to sit you down because you've got a lot to learn because you should never have gone into the temple. And uh, he did it in order to make himself right uh, with the Jews because he figured I can go over there and I'll play like I'm under the law and I'll pay penance for several people in there, and uh, the Jews will love me, and then I can teach them about the Lord Jesus Christ, and it will be a wonderful ministry, uh act, on, act of, of my ministry. And uh, unfortunately, that it doesn't work out that way, because he'll be uh, rebuked by the Jews rather than accepted by the Jews. So we're going to talk about Paul, if you will, in terms of his... Um, Reversionism. When we use that term, we're using a Colonel R.B. themed term. I can't find it in a dictionary, but we know what it means. It means you're reverting back to where you were. In other words, you're leaving your position in Christ and the, taking and the, the uh, metabolized doctrine that you have in your soul. Now you're going backward. Paul's going backward to law keeping. So let's go ahead now while at Corinth, Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans. Returning from Philippi and Troas, as you can see on our map, he stopped at Miletus and spoke with the elders of the church of Ephesus. Acts 20, verse 17 through 35. For example, let's read a few verses. Acts 20, verse 22 and 23. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. In other words, it wasn't like he wasn't warned. He's going to be warned uh, three times, as I recall. Uh, don't go. You're out of line. You do not want to go there. And we'll see that as we continue our study. Even a prophet, and I have a doctrine of Agabus on the internet, he comes down, and not only does he tell Paul, don't you go there, because if you go there, you're going to be in prison. Uh, don't go there. I want you to go to Rome instead. And uh, he goes, and he gets a rope and ties it around, and he says, what I'm doing here now, uh, 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 tying the rope around his waist, you know, they're going to do that to you, because you're wrong. You ought not be going there. But he says, I'm going anywhere, you know, I'm going anyway, you know, sound like some of these Christians who are suffering for Jesus, you know, and he's in in direct contradiction of what God would have for him to do, and he's going to pay for it. But we're going to benefit from it, see, because God works all things for the good. And we know that all things work together for the good to them that love God to them who are the called according to his purpose. Therefore in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Alright, so here he rehearsed his ministry among them and charged them with their sober responsibilities while also warning them of dangers that would arise after his departure. In fact, he goes to the beach and everybody shows up on the beach and they're wishing him, you know, God's will, you know, God's purpose. So wishing to be in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, Paul made his way through Tyre and Caesarea where he was warned of the dangers awaiting him. It is here that Paul becomes a full-fledged reversionist, putting his needs above the will of God. Alright, so we have, of course, a doctrine of Paul's reversionism, and I refer you to that. I'm not real sure whether I'm going to add it to our lessons and. The doctrine of Paul, I know we have it. And it might be well to do that later on. But let's go on right now with 14.4. Alright, and in his religious apostasy, he says, I am even willing to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And then he pursued his course, not God's course. Now this is a great man. This is a man who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. This is a man who uh, I think we can all say, you know, uh, is the supreme example but it's also a man who said you know uh, that oh wretched man that i am who shall deliver me from the body of this death i thank god through jesus christ our lord so then with the mind i serve the law of god but with the flesh the law of sin there is therefore now no condemnation to him who is in christ jesus and on and on and on all right let's go to acts two fourteen. finding the disciples there we stayed with them seven days Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And we'll have three examples of this in scripture. But, uh, it tends to indicate here he had more than two, than three. Uh, but, uh, notice Acts 2.10. After we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Alright, Acts 2.11. Coming over 2111, excuse me, 2110. I'm going to read 21.10 again. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus. He shows up. All right, coming over to us, he took Paul's belt and tied his own hands and feet and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Prophecy of that which did indeed happen. So with him was the money he had collected for the needy saints in Jerusalem. You can read all about that in 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4, 2 Corinthians 8-9, in other words, chapters, Romans 15, 25-27. So he has this money that he was able to get from, if you will, primarily the people in the churches of Macedonia, to take it to the people in Jerusalem who were suffering. Now... Colonel Theme always points out the fact that they were suffering because they were in reversionism. Those Jews would not leave the temple. They would not go to the grace uh, Bible uh, sessions, if you will, that were being held there. So when he's bringing the money, he thinks he's bringing it because, you know, those poor, poor Jews there haven't done a thing wrong, and they are really in trouble, so I'm going to bring them some money. And the colonel would point out, and I think he's right, these people were reversionists. They kept wanting to go in there and doing things for God in the law, you know, where they're supposed to get out of there and start taking in church-age doctrine. And they just didn't want to do that. And we see Paul didn't want to leave it either. He liked that law. See? He can make himself right with God, but the things that he did, you know, the law-keeping. And that's just arrogant. Just arrogance. All right, now notice 14.6. While he was warmly received by James and the elders, certain Jews from Asia, present in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, falsely accused Paul of defiling the temple area by bringing a Gentile into the temple. Which, by the way, he did not do. You can read about that in Acts 21, 27-36. So you see that uh, when he goes to see James, James is going to tell him, well, boy, you know, listen, you know... There are people out there saying that you defamed the temple. You brought a Gentile in there, and he said, "I didn't." He said, "But they think you did." So here we have to come up with something. Let's you and I confer here. So they probably had a prayer meeting, no doubt. Probably nailed right there at the desk of James, but uh, and and then they came up with a evil, evil plan. Here's what you're going to do, Paul. I want you to go into the temple. I want you to take that money. Paul had a big bag of money, you know. I want you to take that. That'll impress the Jews, the big bag of money. And then you can pay the penance of three or four guys who are in there now. That law keeping said you go in there and you make payment and so forth. And uh, then they'll really like you. And when you come out, you can get on the steps there of the temple and you can t- teach about Jesus. Teach about Jesus. And they'll go... Hallelujah! Hallelujah! No, they don't. They do for a little while. And then all of a sudden he makes a strategic error. He says, I took the gospel to the Gentiles. And those Jews go crazy. You what? You took the gospel to the dirty Gentile? Oh no! And they begin to grab him and they, you know, begin to beat him and and God saying, I told you so. Those Jews are never going to listen to you. They are so legalistic. They have to have their temple and their temple worship. And unfortunately, the Roman soldiers are across the street. See, I showed you Mass before Jerusalem. You've got the temple. Then across the street, you've got Fort Antonia. Uh, and uh, they have big towers up there on Fort Antonia so they can look into the Jews and see what they're doing at all times. And uh, that's Mark Anthony Barracks, is also called. And uh, they're going to rescue him, but more of that as we go along. All right, so Paul does what he was warned, or had been warning constantly. He warned all his Gentile converts never to do this. Don't get involved again with the evil legalism of the Mosaic law. The whole book of Galatians is written about that. And we've studied the book of Galatians. And of course, uh, you can do that by going to the internet and and find it under the uh, the the archives, if you will, and, and uh, see what we taught. And uh, it was extremely lengthy teaching. All right, now let's look at let's look at Acts twenty one twenty. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, "You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law." They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? Okay, let's come up with a plan here, Paul. They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved, just like you had yours shaved over there in Sincrea. That was the start of his reversionism. Then everybody will know there is no truth in these reports about you, that you yourselves are living in obedience to the law. You know, there were not really, these reports are wrong. You are living according to the law. Now then, a riot followed and the incident led to his arrest by the Roman captain in the city. This is divine discipline from God for Paul's evil thinking. The imprisonment period can be found in Acts chapter twenty one through chapter fifteen, all the way through the twenty eighth verse or the twenty eighth chapter uh, verse thirty one. Quite a lot of scripture about it. All right, I mean, we've basically covered it by uh Esseparanus. Uh, extemporaneous, excuse me. All right, at first sight it appears strange that Luke should have given so large a section of his narrative to Paul's imprisonment when it was the missionary expansion of the early church that had occupied him up to this point. But Luke was very faithful. He's the one that records the book of the events that happened in the book of Acts and he thought the way the people at West Bank Bible Church needed that so he wrote that down for us. And uh, it's it's the book of Acts, and we've studied the book of Acts. You remember, all right? Concerning this period of Paul's life, it'd be well to study Paul's relations with the following persons and Greek, uh, excuse me, and groups. Are you ready? Let's go. James and the Jerusalem elders, Acts twenty-one verses eighteen through twenty-six. Claudius Lysias, the captain of the Roman garrison in Jerusalem. Acts 21, 31 through 39. And Acts 22, 22 through 30. The Jewish mob in the temple area. Acts 21, 40 through 22, 22. The council or the Sanhedrin, the supreme governing body of Judaism in Jerusalem, consisting of 70 men plus the high priest, And then Felix, the procurator of Judea. Festus, successor to Felix. And I gave you the scriptures there. And we're going to actually have a doctrine a, well, it's a doctrine. I'm going to take it and I'm going to insert it into this Paul series of lessons on Paul, on the trials of Paul, because it's quite lengthy, because he's going to have several trials there in Caesarea. And uh, finally, he, he, twice he's going to say, I do not want to be tried by the Sanhedrin, the Jews. I want to go to Rome, because I'm a citizen of Rome. So finally, they're going to uh, let him go, and we will study what happens are going to have to study first of all the long trip over there on a on a ship where they're going to have a terrible shipwreck. They're going to be washed on the shore of Melida, as it was called then, now called Malta, a very famous island uh, because it's where Roosevelt and uh, Stalin and Churchill met. in as a planning stage, they were hiding out on that particular island. Uh... But uh, that's another story for another time. Now let's look at again, page eight in our lesson plan. Herod Agrippa the second, Roman appointed king over certain territories adjacent to and within Palestine. So we'll be looking at all these particular people uh, later, as we'll take segments out of the various lengthy scriptures, so that we get the gist, and then you can spend more time when you have time to sit down and read for a lot of a lot of detail. So during this period Paul claimed his Roman citizenship Acts 22:25 through 28 appealed to Caesar for a fair trial Acts 25:10 through 12 and was judged to be innocent of the charges against him by both Festus and Agrippa Acts 26:31 through 32 and we'll put all that together when we look at the trials of Paul all right, so his voyage to Rome eventuated in a two-year period of unhindered preaching and teaching practically on Caesar's doorstep. Acts twenty-eight thirty through 31. All right, that's after he gets to Rome. He takes that very long and very dangerous uh, voyage across the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, it's a very interesting story. All right, so what happened to Paul? All right. Did he ever appear before Nero? If so, was he condemned and executed or released? So let's pause right here and review the doctrine of Paul's reversionism. So you know the answers to those questions. Did he ever appear before Nero? Yes, he didn't. <laughs> yes, he didn't. How's that? Uh, he did not appear there. He didn't even have a trial in Rome because none of the Jews showed up. And under Roman law, uh, if you if your accusers don't appear, then they don't try you. It's kind of like the Constitution of the United States. Your accusers are supposed to appear before you, and you can face them. Uh, but they never came. They didn't want to travel all that far. Uh, so as a result, he's going to be released. You remember, there are two imprisonments of Paul. You have uh, the imprisonment over in Caesarea and then Rome, that's the first imprisonment. Then he's going to be released. And he's going to have a short time, another year, maybe a year and a half, where he's going to do a little traveling. He's going to go down to, to uh, the island of Crete. And then uh, he's going to be put into a second imprisonment. And that will be the one he, that's fatal to him. That's in 68 AD. So we'll get there eventually. Uh, but uh, let's see what we can learn now. Summarizing Paul's reversionism. Doctrine of Paul's reversionism. All right, introduction. Paul, like all people, made mistakes and had bouts with negative volition to the Word of God. This doctrine is designed to declare three of Paul's such reversions. All right, point one. Excuse me. Point one. The three selected are... His trip to Jerusalem, his failure to apply impersonal love toward John Mark, and his refusal to teach at Troas. Those will be the three main events of reversionism in the life of Paul. Alright, and we, we've briefly studied the, the trip to, to Jerusalem. And uh, we've studied, of course, the John Mark story. Uh, Now, we know he recovered from the John Mark event. You remember he got mad at John Mark and he got Silas to go with him on the trip rather than Barnabas who took John Mark down to Cyprus. But we know he recovered because later when he's in his second imprisonment, he makes a comment about John Mark. He says, have John Mark come to see me because he just puts joy in my heart when I meet with him. So he had actually recovered, and uh, had a love for John Mark that at uh, one time he certainly didn't indicate there was any love there. All right, uh, here we go. And of course, when when he got to Troas, by the way, we're going to we're going to study that. But there's a time where he gets to Troas. He had written a very very difficult letter to the church at Corinth. He he actually felt sorry he had written the letter. Uh, it's, it's a third epistle to the church at Corinth, which we don't have. But because we have information that he did write it, and it basically was a scathing denunciation of them, and that he was very fearful that he, and, and apologetic that he wrote that letter, uh, that he sent Titus uh, to Corinth to see how they accepted it, or they rejected it, or have they... Uh, left the faith of Christianity because he wrote on this hot letter denouncing them. Uh, and of course, he's gets to Troy, and he wants to know. Golly, I want to know what happened. I want to know how. And so uh, upset that he didn't teach there, though he had positive volition there. See, that's so unlike Paul. When Paul found positive volition, he really taught it. But well, he was just so upset. And then he meets, when, when Titus comes back, he's so relieved. And he writes how relieved he is because Titus comes back and said, They accepted your letter. They realize they have been wrong when they've been talking so evil of you and claiming you're in the business of teaching for money. Et cetera, et cetera. And you're ugly looking and you're, you know, kind of thing. And your mother's ugly looking and dresses you funny. But the point is they had every bad thing you could think of to say about him. And, uh, he finally wrote him a hot letter. And, and he was sorry for it. And then he's happy when Titus comes back and says, not a problem. I went over there, you know, and I told him, well, the cow ate the cabbage, you know. And, and I kicked a few rear ends and, you know, and everything's just fine right there. Paul, you don't have to worry so. So those are evidences of reversionism. And so whenever we get in reversionism, which we will from time to time, we can think we're in good, you know, company, if you will. All right. So the three selected are his trip to Jerusalem, his failure to apply in personal love to John Mark, and his refusal to teach at Troy. All right, in circa fifty eight AD, it was the will of God that Paul That Paul's possessive third missionary journey should go west unto Spain. That's what God wanted him to do. But Paul says in essence, okay, I'll go to Spain a little later. I'm going to Jerusalem now. I want to go to Jerusalem. So he had heard of all the big crowds there, you know, in the temple. And I want to go there and tell them the truth about Jesus. And so James and I are going to scheme. And we're going to scheme and it ain't going to work out, but more of that later. Notice Romans fifteen twenty four. he said, Whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you in Rome. He's me talking about. For I trust to see you in my journey and to be brought on my way thitherward by you, if first I be somewhat filled with your company. In other words, I'll go to Rome on the way to Spain, and I'll meet with you for a while, and I'll you know, be happy to see you. Now, in Ephesus, he decides to go to Jerusalem. So he makes his trip, and I've showed you the map over there. Hey, got over to Ephesus, and I'll flip that chart on again. And uh, you can see the the trip going and the trip coming, if you will. So he decides at Ephesus uh, to go to Jerusalem before going to Rome. It was God's will he go west to Spain, rather than east to Jerusalem. We have no record He ever made it to Spain. But certainly somebody did. And uh, that part was left out in the New Testament as far as who did and how they did it and so forth. So look at Romans 1.10. It says, If by any means I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. Now let's compare Romans 1525 through thirty. 2 with Romans 1.10, which we have earlier seen, Uh, but now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints, for it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia, you remember northern Greece and southern Greece, where he had been, you can see it on the map that I have on the board, to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. Now, verse 28, when therefore I have performed this, taken the money there and done done my teaching, and have sealed them to this fruit, I will come to you and to Spain. All right, verse 29, and I am sure that when I come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now, I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, and for the love of the Spirit, excuse me, that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, and that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints, that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God and may with you be refreshed. So he dearly hoped that he would go there and he would be received well in the temple and they will all want to hear his teaching. And he will tell them all about Jesus Christ and the various things that he knows from his teaching that he learned on in the Arabian Desert uh, directly from God the Holy Spirit. In other words, he wants to teach them. And he's saying, I hope, I hope and I hope, want you to pray that when I do get there, they will all show up and they'll sit down and shut up and listen to me teach. But they didn't. They tried to beat him to death. Why? Because he told them the truth. I took the gospel to the Gentiles. And the Jew just could not handle that. Uh, and did not handle that. Just like they didn't handle Jesus Christ. You remember how they cried out? Crucify him! Crucify him! We'll take the blame for it. And so will our children, you know. And boy, has that happened. Boy, has that happened. Alright, so Paul dearly desires the approbation of the Jewish Christians at Jerusalem and finds really exhilarating the thought of taking an offering from the Gentile churches at Macedonia to the much persecuted Judeo-Christian church at Jerusalem. So we think that they were being persecuted by the Romans for being Jews. Whereas uh, Colonel R.B. Theme takes the position they were actually being persecuted because they were in reversionism. Uh, in other words, they were getting their comeuppance, if you will. Alright, now in a state of reversionism, Paul goes east instead of west. He wants to arrive at a time to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, which comes 50 days after Passover. It is in the Jerusalem church he wants to preach and be recognized as one of the early leaders of the Judeo-Christian faith. Large crowds arrive in Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. Alright, this from a man who warned his Gentile congregants to avoid the Mosaic Law with his evil feast days. How many times did we find that in the book of Galatians? On and on and on and on. Insomuch that when some people come, you remember from Jerusalem and tell, uh, Paul and Barnabas that what you're teaching is wrong, and uh, Paul is the only one who stood up to him. So it's amazing that a man can be like this, isn't it? But we are like that, aren't we? Some days we're good, some days we're bad. We have good days and we have bad days, you know. Sometimes we trust God and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we don't thank Him in everything because we're in pain. Instead of saying, thank you, Lord, for the pain, you know. It's kind of hard to do, isn't it? But the point being, uh, that's humanity. That is humanity, Alright, Colossians 2.16 and 17 says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holiday or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Now notice what he's saying in one of his prison epistles. See, he's, he's learning. Uh, he's learning in jail. In other words, those three years in Caesarea and those three years in Rome, He's there and he has a lot of time to think. He has a lot of time to pray. He has a lot of time to write. And here's what he says to the church at Coloss: Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. And of course, you have to read that entire book. And we study, studied, by the way, the, the book of Colossians. It's a wonderful book. Uh, you remember we studied also Philemon. wonderful book about the slave who ran away and uh, Paul had to send him back. Then notice Galatians 2.16 Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Then in Galatians 2, 19, 20 and 21. For I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but uh, Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For it's righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Now before we read on of some of the things that we find in the book of Galatians, I just want to point out something to you. Colossians 2.16-17 is after his reversionism and his punishment by God and he writes the, one of the prison epistles, the one to the church at Colossae. Now Galatians was written before. So it's in between that he has this bout with reversionism. In other words, you have Galatians written And uh, I just read you. I I love this, those last two verses, verse 20 and 21. Uh, Those were the two verses, the first of two verses that I memorized. In other words, where he says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness comes by keeping the law, then Christ is dead in vain. In other words, he could have just as well stayed home. We didn't need him. You know, we didn't need him. If that were the case. Now let's read on the before. So we have before. We have what he wrote later. And in between, reversionism. Alright, now notice chapter 3, verses 1-6. through Oh, foolish Galatians! Who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you, received by the Spirit, by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith. In other words, faith has replaced the law. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain? If it be yet in vain, he therefore that ministers to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doth he do it by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. That's the first we study so much in the Old Testament. That's a quote from the Old Testament. Alright, then in Galatians three ten eleven 11, and 12, For as many as are the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in the things which are written in the book of the law to do them, But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Wherefore the law was our what? Schoolmaster, bus driver to bring us under Christ, school bus driver, to bring us under Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. So he taught all of them that book of Galatians and more and more and more about quit being under the law. And then, of course, he went through reversionism and he had to go to prison. Then he wrote Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and Ephesians. Wonderful grace books. So you can see inserted in between he says, about with reversionism. I notice Romans 3.20 Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight for the law is the knowledge of sin. Romans 10.4 and 5 For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. And then 10.5 For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law that the man which doeth these things shall live by them. Alright, we're going to stop right there and I'm going to insert at this particular point an invitation. Why? Because we really pointed out that there's nothing you can do. Keeping the law or not keeping the law or being good or not being good. You can't do anything to make yourself right with God. It is impossible. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He came unto His own Israel, but His own received Him not. But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them who believe on His name. It's simple, isn't it? But so many people like to make it complicated. Oh, I'm okay because I keep the mosaic law. Oh, I'm okay because I do good things. Oh, I'm okay I visit on Tuesday. Oh, I'm okay I come every Wednesday. I'm okay I come every Sunday. Oh, I'm doing God such a favor, such a favor. You know, I'm just a really good person. So when I get to the judgment seat, I'll be able to hand all these things to Christ and say, look at me, look at me, look at me. Whereas the Bible says, as you well know, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord hath laid upon Him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So right where you are, bow your head and close your eyes, if you will. And you out there who has not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ... Uh, you can do that right now wherever you are. What What do you have to do? Well, you just have to tell God the Father, I'm believing on God the Son. And you say, well, that's too easy. Oh, it is easy. Easy for you, but it was difficult for Him. Extremely difficult to leave perfection in heaven and to come to earth and take the abuse that He took. That's why it's easy for us. All we've got to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. As many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God. So right where you are, whatever you might be doing, you've heard the story. You just simply tell God the Father, I'm believing on God the Son and on the promise of the Word, you will be saved. I'm going to pause for just a moment so you can do just that. And then I'm going to uh, provide our benediction. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and to worship. Now I would ask that uh, God the Holy Spirit would take that which I have presented make it real in order that we might grow in your wonderful grace and become more like our Lord and Savior, even Jesus the Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.